it is always a pleasure to get to talk to you guys, uh, to get to study God's word and then present it to people who are a captive audience. But also, I just want to say, although I, I don't say this very frequently, just how much I appreciate being a part of this congregation. You guys are wonderful, and it has truly been a blessing to be here and uh, to get to worship with you guys and to be a part of you uh, during this internship program. So when I was about eight, I remember learning about this parable in Matthew about a field owner. And this field owner, he has, he, he has a field that he wants some people to work. So he gets up early in the morning and he get, goes to the market and he gets some day laborers. First, right at sunset, sunrise. Then a couple hours later, he decides that he needs some more people. So he goes back to the market, gets more people, and he does this several times. So by the end of the day, there are five groups of people. Uh, one of them has worked 11 hours, then uh, nine, then six, three, and one hour respectively. But at the end of the day, they all get paid the same amount. Now, this is ultimately a parable about grace, but my lazy eight-year-old brain was like, okay, this is the fast track to heaven. Because look, there are all these suckers who are working their whole lives, giving up all of their own will and all the fun things, and they're going to work all their lives, and then at the end of their life, they're going to go to heaven. But I'm going to live a long time, do whatever I want. In the last like six months, I'll straighten my life up, and I'm also going to get to go to heaven. Ha ha, I figured it out. Now, this is, there's some elements of this. I don't know why I'm still wearing this. Elements of this <laughs> that are comical, but at the same time, there this fundamental flaw in thinking is one that is common to a lot of people in the world. And that is that many people believe that following Jesus is something that is unpleasant, that we don't like to do. And don't get me wrong, it's hard. And Jesus tells his followers that at, right at the beginning. He says, look, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to give up lots of things, your own will, yeah, you're gonna, it's gonna split homes, and it's gonna be hard. But it's going to be worth it. And that's what I wanna talk about this morning. Because I, I think, let's try looking at this through a different lens. Because we've got this picture of work. Uh, and that's the, the picture that Jesus gives in this parable. And work is inherently unpleasant. We don't like to work in. There, it has its good moments, but all in all, if you gave us two options, one, to spend seven hours watching Netflix and then one hour working, or spend eight hours working and get paid the same amount, we would watch Netflix because that's the more fun thing to do. But try a different analogy for me. And this is one that comes through many passages of the Bible, Ephesians, Ezekiel, this idea of following God as a marriage. So if you could be married at 20 and have a whole life to live with the person that you love or live your whole life not married, not having to give up all the freedom and the things that are unpleasant about marriage. And then in the last six months of your life, you straighten up your life and ha, you've both of you have ended your life a married person. But one of you is much happier than the other because marriage 
is a pleasurable thing. It is good. And the world at, at large understands that. But for some reason, we think following Jesus is not good. But the, the comparison is, is pretty similar. I mean, both require you to give up what you would like to do sometimes, parts of your freedom. And uh, both of them, you know, keep you contained in something. You're committed to this for the rest of your life. But we do marriage because we enjoy being with the one that we love. And when we give up sin and a, a life of fleshly living to pursue God, it's the same sort of thing. We will find the greatest relationship that has ever been intended for us. And so I want to talk today about why it's worth it, why I am a Christian, why it's such a blessing to follow Jesus. And the first reason I want to say, I've got three for us today, though though there are many I could have gone through. The first is that when you're a follower of God, God tells you that you matter. Now, if you pick up a work of secular science or philosophy, uh, any work of literature written by someone who does not believe in a creator, what you will find is that rather than a designed person who is really uh, on purpose and has a meaning in life, that you're just like a random collection of cells and you just sort of happened and you're an accident and like all of these really unfortunate things and you don't have purpose or cognition that you can really trust. Rather, it's your brain is an accumulation of random cells as well, and your instincts are what drives you, not choices that you're making. And it's, it's really a sad state of things, but as you follow naturalism to its natural conclusion, that's really where you will end, whether or not uh, that is obvious from the pages of their reading. But if you look at a worldview presented by the Bible, then you will find a very different set of answers to these existential questions. You might ask, why am I here? Well, God put you here. He designed you to do his will. And where am I going toward a future with God, toward the future that God has envisioned for your life and after death to, to heaven? And am I an accident? No, you are very on purpose do I matter immensely? This is the picture that we get from the Bible. And if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, I'd like to show you that. Uh, if the naturalist point of view is that you are an unreliable, unimportant, uninspired mortal husk following your natural instincts, the Bible has a very different picture. We're going to read a few verses here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We'll start in Genesis 1, 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and the livestock over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we'll skip down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
And then we'll read one more verse here in chapter 2, and this one kind of jumps back in time to focus more on the creation of Adam. In verse 7 of chapter 2, Then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now, I think we're going to see a lot of things from these verses, and we're going to work actually backwards through the ones we just read. So in verse 2-7, we're going to start with the idea that God made you, that the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature, that God didn't just sort of snap his fingers and hope that randomly a bunch of stuff would come together. No, God molded man the way that he intended him to be and personally breathed life into man. God was intimately involved in the creation of man. And that's a totally different picture than just a roll of the die. No, you are very on purpose. And then in verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw that every, he saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. Now, if you're cooking and you make like a soup and it's too salty or spicy or you burn it, you don't say, ah, oh, this is good. You say, ah, oh, I messed up. But no, God made man and he made him the way he intended him to be. God made man good. You are good. And then we'll go up to verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there are several parts of this, but first, God created man in his own image. Now, what that means is a little bit unclear, but what is clear is this. First, that there is something that differentiates man from the rest of God's creation, that man is made in God's image. And now maybe that is talking about man's cognition or maybe the part of him that goes on after death. But in any case, God gave man a part of himself that is different from anything else and makes us special. But God making us in his image also tells us something else about ourselves. Not just uh, who we are, but perhaps it gives us a glimpse into our purpose. And that's the next thing, is that we have a purpose. So if we are made in God's image, then we are here to reflect him. Uh, If you think about maybe the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument, these are two impressive images that are intended to reflect men who have had a tremendous impact on the world. And while the Lincoln Memorial literally is an image of Abraham Lincoln, the Washington Monument doesn't have a face, only a spirit that of this enormous statue that forever changed the face of Washington, D.C. And in the same way, you can think about You know, George Washington, a man who forever changed the way that this this nation would be. And so this statue, although it doesn't look like him, it bears his image. It represents George Washington. And in the same way, we we might not look like God. I don't know if that's what this means. But what I can say is that we are here to represent God. God, and that when people see us, they are reminded of the incredible creator 
that made us. And so part of this idea of being made in the image of God is that we are here to bring glory to our creator. And finally, in this verse, we're told God made man male and female. He created them. So people created two complementary genders to help out one another, but also both of them created in the image of God. Men created in the image of God are father of all, and women created in the image of God who, like a mother hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, who, like a nursing mother, could never forget her children. No, men and women both made in the image of God, beautiful and on purpose. And finally, we go back to verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here we see not just God made man in his image, but also God gave him dominion. He set him above the creatures, but also there's a sense in this dominion of responsibility. If you look in uh, verse two, chapter 2, verse 15, it says the Lord uh, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That God gave man dominion over the earth so that he would take care of the earth. And that's uh, also what uh, 128, when it says, fill the earth and subdue it, similar sort of idea. That God gave man authority over the earth and said, take care of this, which is basically stewardship. God gave man certain things that he had control over, and he said, take care of this, make it better, grow the garden, help the animals. And in a very similar sort of way, we all have certain things that God has put us in charge of. We have money, we have a home, we have a family that we can impact in positive ways. And all of us have a sphere of influence that in a very similar way, we can impact the world around us and slowly bring it in line with the vision that God has for the world. And that, I believe, is what for, is what Genesis teaches us about our purpose. And what's funny about this is that if you ask an atheist what their purpose is on earth, they will say something very similar. That, oh, well, God's or, <laughs> the chance has given me money, and I, I have all these things, and I, I want to be a good person, and I want to make the world a better place. And they're they have a, a very similar view of what they're supposed to do just without God. And I think that's funny uh, given that their philosophy doesn't really point to that as an end. But we have that clearly taught to us that we are supposed to take care of, what, of the influence that we have. Now, if you think about uh, maybe the Lord's Prayer that we see in Matthew 6, God, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't think that's just something we're supposed to pray idly and hope that it happens. So I think that that is, in many ways, a manifestation of exactly what God wanted man to do here, which is take care of the things around you and slowly bring the world more in line with what God wants you to do. And maybe you know, you're a lawyer, and if so then that means you bring more justice to the world. 
And maybe you're a doctor, and that means you bring healing to the world. Or maybe you're just a normal person, and you share some food with a homeless person, or you give money to a charity. And slowly, you are taking the things that you have control over, taking the things that are in your sphere of influence, and you bring it a little bit more in line with God's will. And that is what Genesis teaches us about our purpose. And so if we believe in God, then he tells us that we have a purpose. He tells us that he made us so intentionally. But there's one more thing that we know about how we matter from the Bible. And that is that God loves you. And that is something that is unchanging. Now, there are people who love us, but they can never love us the way that God does. And maybe there will be times in your life where you feel like no one loves you, but you know that God loves you. Turn over to Romans, the eighth chapter. Sorry, Romans, the fifth chapter. In Romans chapter five, we'll start in verse six. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is what Paul tells us in Romans, that God loves us. He loved us even when we were sinners, even the people that crucified Christ, even the people who said, I don't want anything to do with you. God still loved them. And if you found a person that loved that unconditionally, you would say, I want to I be around that person. I want to I bring that person into my inner circle of friends. I, I want to learn as much as I can from them because they're such a blessing to me. But we haven't found a person like that. We have found an immortal being who has unlimited power. And he loves us to that extent. What a blessing that is. That through all of this world of billions of people, God loves you so specifically. And here's something kind of interesting to me, at least. Uh, if you think about how many people in the world claim Christianity as their religion? There are 2.2 billion people who say that they are Christians. Now, if you imagine each of them prays on average like 30 seconds a day, we're talking over 750,000 people praying at any one given time, which means that while you are praying to God, there are, he is conducting conversation with 750,000 people. And now this may make you seem insignificant, but I think that this does two things for me. One, it shows how incredible God is because he can listen and act in 750,000 people's lives at, a, at the same time, and I can hardly keep track of one conversation. But the other thing is that every time God acts in my life, when I pray to God and I say, God, I've got a lot on my plate. I am feeling exhausted. I need your peace or you know, help heal this person that I love. And he does that. How special do you feel in that moment that while thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were praying to God, he listened to you and acted in your life to do the things that you were asking. That is wild to me. 
that I can have that kind of influence on the immortal creator of the entire universe. And that makes me feel incredibly special. It reminds me that I matter. It reminds me how much God loves me. And so, as I said, the first point, the first amazing thing about being a Christian is that God tells us that we matter. But the second thing is that you are never alone. God is always with you. Ah. And this is something that is really comforting to me because as I, I think this might be true for all people, but I think it's definitely true for me. One of my greatest fears is being alone and not having anyone to carry, uh, to, to help me carry the weight of the world around with me. And uh, it is it's such a blessing uh, to have friends and to have uh, my wife who I can come to and I can talk about uh, the, the pain that I'm feeling and the frustration. And I know what a blessing it is to, to have people that I can share that with. But the truth is that people don't always help. People don't always work out. And sometimes they're not available or there aren't people. And in that case, what do you do? Well, God is always there for us. He has promised us that we will never be alone. And so if you've ever had the question of, you know, what do I do when my best friend or my spouse like lets me down? Or what do I, who do I call when no one is picking up the phone? Or who wipes away the tears when you are crying alone in the bathroom? Well, in that case, we can rely on God. Our God who reminds us time and time again that he will never leave us or forsake us. Our God who has kept count of all our tossings and put our tears in his bottle. Our God who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Yes, it is an incredible blessing to get to follow God, an incredible blessing to know that no matter what I'm going through, no matter how much pain I'm feeling or how alone I feel in this present world, I can always look to God. He will always be there for me to help, to listen, to bear my load. But in addition to God, we have another thing that reminds us that we are never alone, and that is that we have a family here on earth. And if you'll turn over to Mark, the 10th chapter. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Peter asks God, or asks Jesus, about this sort of thing. So, as we stated earlier, it can be, a sacrifice to follow Jesus. And I, I don't in any way, by my explanation of how amazing it is to follow Christ, want to undercut the fact that it is difficult and that it requires a great amount of sacrifice. I mean, Jesus tells several people who want to follow him uh, that you know, they're going to have to leave behind their families, that in some cases that their families will be broken apart by Jesus. And I know many people who have lost their jobs or have missed promotions at least because they were a follower of Christ. And these are not trivial things. But when we give up for Christ, he promises a return. Here in Mark chapter 10, uh, and we'll start in verse 28. 
where Peter says, uh, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now, Peter is telling the truth. These apostles had left behind their families for several years to follow around this guy from Galilee and learn about his teachings. But Jesus responds to him in the next verse. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There's a lot going on in what Jesus says here, but I want to focus here on, on one part of this. And he says, basically, whoever gives up their family to follow me for the gospel will receive back a hundredfold in this time. Now, I was blessed to be born into a nuclear family, uh, parents and brothers that I did not have to give up to follow Jesus. But just simple math here. I have one father and one mother, but when I am part of a church, part of a local congregation, I have access to so many uh, older men and older women who can teach me, give me guidance and wisdom, a warm meal, like people who truly love me. And I have one biological brother, but through the church, I have met so many brothers and sisters, people who have encouraged me, people who I can call when I'm sad or feeling lonely, people who can pray for me. Sometimes uh, I have this one friend, Tomas, uh, who I met at camp. Uh, He's from Brazil. He doesn't speak English well, but he prayed for me in Portuguese, which was like the wildest thing. These people all over the world, united by one thing, and that is that they are followers of Christ. And when you are a follower of Christ, when you have the same number one priority in life, there is a bond that you get from that. A love, a connection, a family that nothing in this world can compare to. And so when you are a follower of God, you have a family You are never alone. You are always just one prayer away from contact with God who loves and will always take care of us, who has our best interest in mind, and never too far from your brothers and sisters who are part of the church who can encourage and uplift you and help you bear whatever load you're carrying. And so when you are a follower of God, you are never alone. But finally, When you are a follower of God, you are free. Now, this might sound a little bit oxymoronic because uh, the general wisdom is that uh, to follow Christ, you got to give up a lot of stuff and that you're enslaving yourself in many ways and that you're giving up your freedom. And while that is true, uh, I think that there is a greater freedom that is found in Jesus. And if you'll let me explain, uh, let me just indulge me for a moment in a bit of philosophy. So there is at least 
One idea that freedom would be getting to do whatever I want, whenever I want it, without anything encumbering me. So, you know, if I want uh, to eat food, I should just be able to, like, walk up to Taco Bell and grab a burrito, and that would be freedom because no one could stop me. And, uh, you know, if I wanted to have sex, you know, it's like family, you know, marriage, you know, that's nothing. Just do whatever I want because that's freedom. But... Is that freedom? Because if you ask yourself this, what is ruling those things? Is it your mind? Is it your cognition? Or is it that you're being pushed by the urges of the flesh? You're being controlled by your desires. And the things that you want in life, the nice car, the trendy clothes, these choices that you're making, are they a function of you making choices? Or are you being pushed about by society and the whims of this life. And in many cases, I think we will find that what we call freedom is really just following our bodies or society. And we're not free in that case. We're just slaves to something else. But if you follow Jesus, the God who made us, created us, who knows what the best quality of life is for us. And he teaches us what things to give up so that we can live life the way that he intended us to live it. Then you will find a freedom that is different from this world's freedom, a freedom that requires you to give up certain things, but it requires you to give up things that probably would be best for you if you gave them up. Let's, let me give you a concrete example. So how many of you have ever said something to someone when you were angry that you immediately regretted? I think probably of all the sins that plague mankind, angry words is like at least top three. Uh, and I know I've been in those situations where uh, I wish that I could just go back and take back the things that I said because I, I lost control of my, mind, uh, my, my mouth as I was getting angry or I was overcome with emotion. And what if in those times I was able to control what I wanted to do so badly for that like five second increment, but that for years after I was really frustrated at myself for doing. And I think that that is the trade-off that we should be conceptualizing as we think about giving up sin, giving up our own will. Because, yes, we are giving up uh, control, but really it's for the best. In fact, I am often praying to God that he would not let me do the things that I want to do. One, because I know that the things that I want to do aren't always the things that are best for me. And two, I know that ultimately... What I want is to be able to interact with people in a way that is kind, a way that I'm not going to regret. And when I ask God to, to take away that, that control and to, uh, to help me to do not what I want to do, but what I know that he wants me to do, then what I find is that I'm living a much better life and that the freedom that I had to give up, the sin that I had to give up is kind of like giving up uh, like a few extra pounds around the waist. Like it's, I'm not going to miss it. In fact, I feel a lot better not having to carry it all around. And so 
yes, we give up an element of freedom to follow Jesus. But the freedom that we gain, the freedom over our desires, over our own will, is incredible. And no, I'm not saying that, you know, as soon as you raise from the water, suddenly you're not tempted by any desire and that you're you know, free to just never be evil again. No, like, we're humans. We fall. We still say angry things. But I can tell you personally that following Jesus has transformed my interactions with people. And I know, you know, you can read like in Galatians, for example, we've been studying that in uh, our Sunday class, that God tells us if, if you try to follow me or you try and overcome the temptations of the flesh by the flesh, you are not going to succeed. It's not going to work. But if we are led by the spirit, then we have a chance by leaning on God in all circumstances to overcome the desires of the flesh, the things that hurt the people around us, and to be free from those things and to live life as it's intended to be lived. But there's another element of freedom here, and that is freedom from guilt. Uh, a lot of people think about the Bible as like a set of rules to tell you uh, all the things that you can't do. But I actually think about it a little bit different than that. So you don't need the Bible to tell you that like murder or lying or stealing are wrong things for you to do. And if you did them, you wouldn't need the Bible to tell you that you should probably feel bad about that. And you don't need the Bible to tell you that when you're interacting with people and you say something rashly that hurts them or you act in a selfish way or you act in a way that's prejudiced, like that you should feel guilty about that. So it's not that the Bible teaches us to feel guilty. Rather, I think the Bible actually gives us a way out from our guilt. If you turn to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. When you are living without Christ, there is a guilt that you carry around, an inevitable guilt from the problems of our life, from the problems of following our desires. And when you carry that guilt around, it's hard to shake. But in Christ, we can have that taken away. If you look with me in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, in verse 13, he's talking about uh, the way that sins were taken away in the Old Testament, that they cleansed the flesh, but not uh, the, the conscience. And so he says in verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences, sorry, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That these last few words here, when we have the blood of Christ, it purifies our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. That we don't have to carry the weight of our sin around with us anymore because Jesus takes it away. And that is shown in several other places. Another place in Hebrews, in chapter 4, we're told, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. Or in Romans chapter 8, where we're told there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, the Bible doesn't teach us to feel bad. The Bible shows us a way to overcome sin, to overcome the guilt, to give that all to Jesus so that we don't have to feel guilty anymore. And now, of course, I must say, this doesn't just mean that you can, you know, that proverbially tag the base of Jesus and just run around and do whatever you want. No, like, we have to follow God. And if you want to get rid of the guilt of sin, then you must decide to follow him, to give up your desires, to commit yourself to him, to stop doing the things that you know are wrong. But when you do, as we said with the previous point, it will make your life better. Because if there's one person who knows how to use a Windows computer, it's Bill Gates, the guy who built it. And if there's one person who knows what your life is supposed to be like, it's God who designed you. And so if God is telling you this is how you should live your life, I would listen to that. Because God knows what's best for us. And if we follow him, we can have freedom from our desires, from our guilt, and finally freedom from fear in death. And this rolls right from our previous point. If you live in a world where you are afraid of the possibility of a fiery afterlife, then like death is a scary thing because you don't want to go there. And if you're the kind of person that doesn't believe in an afterlife, then death is just another reminder of how insignificant you are, how little impact you had on the world, and the only thing that will be left of you is a tombstone that no one ever visits. But when you are a Christian, when you believe in God, we have hope, hope that goes beyond this life into the next. And if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think we'll see that. In 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is explaining the excitement and the importance of a resurrection, he concludes in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. When you believe in Christ, when you follow him, when you have dedicated yourself to being his servant, then you have nothing to fear in death because death cannot separate you from God because you are never alone. Nothing can separate you from God. And if you're not carrying the guilt of this life, if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, followed him faithfully, then sin cannot hurt you in death. The sting is taken away. And 
as we look to this future life where our mortal bodies will be put away and we will get an immortal body, one that is intended to live forever in heaven with God. How exciting is that, that we, to be forever with the Lord in heaven? That is what we have to look forward to if we are believers. And so when you are a Christian, you gain amazing things. And it's really sad that there are so many people in the world that don't know that. There's still so many people who think that it would be an unpleasant thing for them to follow Jesus. But it's amazing. I mean, God tells us that we matter, that he made us personally, that we have a purpose and that he loves us. God gives us a family here and contact with him so that we are never alone. And he frees us from the whims of our own desires to pursue life as he intended it to be. He frees us from the guilt of a guilty conscience so that we can be free. And he frees us from fear in death so that we can be excited at the prospect to go to heaven and be with God. That is an incredible offer. And so today, as many of you guys already know most of this stuff, I, I hope that this will be an encouraging reminder to you of what an incredible gift it is to be a follower of Jesus. And if not, uh, if, you've, if you came here wondering, is, is it worth it? Uh, or if you've been trepidatious, waiting, trying to decide, should I do this? Do I want to give up? The answer is yes, it is so worth it. Because is it hard to be a follower of Jesus? Yes. Do you have to give things up? Absolutely. But is it worth it a million times? Yes. So we're going to sing a song here in a moment. It's intended to encourage you. And if we can help you in any way, uh, if you need prayers, uh, the encouragement of our congregation, we would love to help you with that. Or if you've never begun your walk with Christ, we would love to help you with that, to show you the next step so that you can gain all of these incredible things. If you have any need, please come forward as we stand and sing.